Hello and welcome to Breaking Badness. This is a special episode, A Year in COVID Cybercrime. I'm Tim Helming, and on this episode, you'll hear from some familiar Breaking Badness voices, as well as some other experts who came on specifically for this episode. Stay with us. Breaking Badness is next. When most people think of COVID-19, cybercrime and fraud are not the first things that come to mind. And that's appropriate. As we record this podcast, over 2.7 million people worldwide and over 540,000 in the U.S. have lost their lives from the disease. And of the tens of millions of survivors, many will suffer after effects from it, some of them serious, possibly for the rest of their lives. But while it may pale in comparison with the public health crisis, the cybercrime and fraud based on COVID is taking a toll as well. Through this episode, we'll look at the various ways criminals are capitalizing on the pandemic, from ransomware to fake vaccines to disinformation campaigns. But we'll also learn more about some of the great work that's being done to combat this activity. March 2020 went on record as the longest month in human history, at least according to, well, pretty much everyone. It was the month when not only the magnitude of the pandemic became really clear, but also when its impact on our lives, everyone's, not just frontline workers or folks who had the virus themselves, became significant. March 2020 was when a lot of companies began or even fully completed the shift to remote work. It was when flatten the curve became household words. And March of 2020 is when COVID lock hit. So uh, COVID lock was an Android lock screen ransomware that used a coronavirus lure to net those that were afraid of um, people around them that may be infected. That's Chad Anderson, a familiar voice to Breaking Badness listeners. Chad and fellow researcher Tarek Sala were doing something that has become a standard practice for the research team at Domain Tools. They were hunting for malicious online infrastructure and activities tied to a news item, in this case, COVID. It really started um, with uh, Turbo and um, Sean starting to pull out all of those coronavirus themed domains. And we started out, we should mention that in December, we started out with just like a handful that were being registered and we would look at them each by hand. By January, that had grown to like kind of, you know, picking at random and trying to see which ones would be most interesting. And then by February, um, that was when we had to start writing some sort of automation to hunt through those things. So that was where I wrote stuff that would go through each and every single domain and look for uh, binaries or malicious documents, would look for some um, common things in JavaScript that would be malicious, um, and would also uh, take all of the screenshots of those domains and dump them into a big thing I could scroll through each day to try and spot um, potentially malicious domains. And that's how we found the initial website um, was because of that. So without the work of separating out all those domains each day and then like manually going through each of them and then moving that into some sort of automation, we probably wouldn't have found it. One of these domains was coronavirusapp.site. Needless to say, though I'm going to say it anyway, don't click on that URL. It looked like a beneficial site, a location-based coronavirus tracker. It had a call to action, though, 
which was to download an app that it called Coronavirus Tracker. That app was not what it appeared to be. With COVID lock, what was really um, what was really fascinating is that we that Chad initially came upon this um, at this domain that was seen, um, you know, looking like it's uh, serving out a coronavirus themed application. And while not necessarily outwardly malicious, it was definitely suspicious. The app locked the victim's phone, demanding a payment of $100 in Bitcoin within 48 hours to release it. To a lot of users, this certainly would have been a scary thing to see, and undoubtedly a lot of people did pay the ransom. Fortunately, Chad and Tarek were able to reverse-engineer decryption keys so that victims would not have to pay the criminals in order to get their phones back. Here's Tarek again, talking about how they reversed the malware. It um, initially presents itself... um... Well, first off, you have to be successfully lured into downloading it from this domain, from the domain it was being served from. Um, and what was interesting, too, is the artwork and the visuals behind COVID lock, the way it initially presents itself, seems pretty legitimate. It's uh, You can tell there's been a little bit of time and attention groomed towards the user interface to make it look pretty. Um, you know, that's one thing about malware in general is that if it looks pretty, there's going to be a higher uh, chance of uh, successful clicks and successful victims. And I think that's the case here with COVID lock too. Uh, so it initially presented itself as a very straightforward app. It didn't, uh, you know, get in your face like a lot of other phishing or ransomware attacks where they initially present you with a, uh, you know, give me your credentials screen, something very aggressive. So when you first fired up COVID lock, um, it would present a kind of a, a really interesting looking dashboard, if you will. And it gave you the option to kick off uh, scanning and tracing of your local area, kind of the the, the area around you, um, which would leverage what we would assume is like a uh, publicly available database of infection rates based on your location. So it all seemed very legitimate. Um, and then after you go through the process, what's happening is when you try to click on or when you do click on hey, I want to see who's essentially affected in my infected around my area. What it would do in the background is kick off certain API calls to go ahead and reset the pin on your phone to one that was hard-coded in the app. And then after a certain amount of time, go ahead and kick on the, uh, the lock screen um, with a note on the lock screen itself that would essentially say, hey, pay a certain amount of Bitcoin to this wallet address um, and we'll give you your PIN number back, which is which is interesting because some of the infrastructure also used by it was uh, Pastebin. So Pastebin is a, play, a, a place to use where you could just temporarily store plain text data, whatever you'd like, um, into a thing called Pastes. And so it used Pastebin to grab the ransomware note, but it held the decryption and encryption key statically inside of the actual um APK itself, which was very convenient for us at Domain Tools because that let us being able to publicize the decryption key for any victims. Google also provided protection in its Nougat update for Android. All in all, it could have been worse, but it certainly was an adding insult to injury thing. You're trying to do the right thing, informing yourself about the coronavirus, and someone takes advantage of you and rips you off. Not cool. Have we seen any other COVID-themed mobile ransomware apps? There's been a bunch of COVID-themed um, Android malware that's come along. There's been a handful. I know from what I recall, there was one called CryCryptor that came out shortly after COVID lock, 
which essentially targeted uh, the victimology was, I believe, Canadian users. But it essentially kind of followed the same playbook as COVID lock, where, you know, you're luring people into believing a Android COVID themed Android application can help you look for other infected areas uh, in your in your geographical area, too. So kind of to avoid hotspots and things like that. What about regular desktop OS COVID malware? So for for non-mobile, you know, um, it's really been used more of as a lure entirely for um, everything from, um, well, pretty much every ransomware actor that's out there um, through every, uh, you know, APT and cybercrime. Or basically what we have is a situation where the entire world is thinking about something, right? Like normally we would see um, an event coming up, uh, say the Olympics or the World Cup or something that would get leveraged as something that everyone cared about to look at, you know, or something would be hyper regional, right? Like they're going to um, they know that the Olympics is happening in Tokyo. So they're going to be sending out a lot of mile docs to Tokyo companies about taxes required to pay for Olympic fees or something if you're operating in the Olympic zone. And um, so, but with COVID, uh, it was on everyone's mind. So it was everywhere. Uh, and that just led to this situation where every actor everywhere could send any email to anyone with the maldoc that was COVID themed and expect to get some kind of response. Um, and that fear was really played up. So that just led to regular um, infections of pre-existing malware using COVID-themed documents um, and, uh, and whatnot. You know, during the height of it, though, we were seeing it from all kinds of different attack vectors. So phishing, right? You'd see very juvenile to very sophisticated level COVID-themed um, phishing attempts and attacks um, and from low-level cyber criminals. But we'd also see the same types of attacks happen um, from the APT side of the house. I know that there was certain more uh, sophisticated threat groups that were attacking um, medical institutions, um, places working on vaccines before they were out, um, places that um, like the um, World Health Organization too, um, to steal data, to um, you know do espionage-related things involving COVID um, using COVID-related uh, lures and themes. So it was so interesting to see the whole gamut there. It was an opportunity all cyber criminals across the board took advantage of and saw success with too. I think we're starting to see a a dwindle in terms of tracing and whatnot, but it's picking up steam and kind of evolving and morphing into now COVID vaccines. COVID lock in March may not have been the first COVID-related ransomware variant, and it almost certainly won't be the last. The pandemic's going to be with us for a while, and criminals will keep looking for ways to make money off of it. Nick Espinoza is a Chicago-based security researcher, author, and speaker. He's the official spokesperson for the COVID Cyber Threat Coalition, a group that was formed in the early days of the pandemic by InfoSec folks who could see the badness coming a long way out. The COVID-19 Cyber Threat Coalition, or CCTC, as we like to call ourselves, was started in mid-March, basically at the beginning of the pandemic, when everything started to go into lockdown, not just here in the United States, but also in other places like Italy and all of that. And so uh, our founder is Joshua Sachs, the chief data scientist for Sophos. Uh, You may know them from their firewalls and antivirus and, and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, he basically put out a call on Twitter and said, hey, you know, we, you know, we'd like to get together and actually start looking at this threat because essentially 
all the cyber attack is probably going to use COVID-19 as some kind of lure. And, you know, sure enough, he was absolutely right. You know, I signed on, I want to say about two days later or so, uh, you know, after reading a, an article that was, I think, published like the same day or, or the day after, yeah, you know, he started this and we basically came together to do exactly that, to start looking at those indicators of compromise, uh, you know, as we were, uh, you know, shuffling through all of these different threats and lures that we saw. And, and if you remember in the beginning of the pandemic, Everybody was kind of a bit of in a rush to lock down, work remote, uh, you know, and then we had problems like where the heck are we going to find toilet paper? You know, like this is a complete rush on absolutely everything. You know, and so by virtue of that, we saw a lot of uh, threat basically spin up. And through the help of companies like Domain Tools, you know, we were able to identify about 5,000 domains a day being registered at, at its peak for COVID-related things, not all malicious, but a good chunk of those were. Uh, and so by virtue of that, we started basically putting together a process where we could sift through these IP addresses, these domains, and really start vetting this to make sure that you, know, you actually were buying N95 masks, not from some ripoff artist, God knows where, but actual N95 masks or toilet paper or everything else. And as the pandemic shifted into, uh, you know, from, from toilet paper to stimulus checks and everything else and vaccines, obviously the, the attackers, the criminals basically kept with it. And so, so did we. Our Domain Tools research team colleague, Turbo Conwell, was our connection to the coalition. Turbo used his background in data science to help that sifting through of the domains. I'd say that the, the the major amount of work that um, was going on right then was mostly around building out an allow list. In that this ramp up of you know thousands of domains per day being created, um, threat actors pretty much you know started first. And they were creating like websites for you know OklahomaCovidResponse.com and stuff. And then after about two weeks, Oklahoma started you know all the basically all the different states and cities and you know, um, uh, nonprofits started actually creating their um, COVID response websites that looked just like, you know, all the, um, the, 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 the fraud based ones that everyone had been standing up for the prior you know, week or two. If you spend any time looking at indicator lists or analyzing traffic you're seeing from your own protected environment, you know that it's not always easy to figure out whether what you're looking at is bad or not. For about two weeks, we were just vetting websites like crazy to make you know make sure that yeah, this really is some hospital in Oklahoma. Which, from a programmatic standpoint, uh, is really a difficult thing to do to be able to say we have a website that's uh, you know related to coronavirus. How do we tell if it's malicious or not? Because some of the technologies used um, by malicious threat actors are used by legitimate websites as well too. Things like iframes, for example. You know, just because you have an iframe on a web page doesn't mean that that's necessarily malicious. It was clear to everyone working on the problem that COVID-themed attacks were not going to go away anytime soon. And some of those attacks hit the most vulnerable of targets. Ransomware related to COVID didn't just affect users who happened to click on malicious links or download malicious apps. The summer and fall of 2020, a time when the virus was still rampaging, saw a rash of ransomware attacks on hospitals. Now this just seems inhumane, but cyber criminals have seized on hospitals as a favorite category of victim. Here's Nick Espinoza again. 
there was this basic public push by cyber criminals, I kid you not, to basically say, we are not going to hit hospitals in the middle of the pandemic. And if we accidentally hit a hospital, we will unlock it for free and apologize for that kind of thing. But what that really didn't take into account to, and for the record, not every cyber gang actually got in on that, you know, got in on that pledge, right? I mean, no honor among thieves. But what that didn't actually account for is the supply chain for hospitals. What about the PPE manufacturers that were getting ransom? What about the pharmaceutical corporations? What about the trucking company that would ship the, the PPE to, to the, you know, uh, so, so when you look at this, that might've been a grand gesture on the cyber criminals, but it was, it just completely fell flat. Electronic health records have been standard for years now. All sorts of medical devices are networked and thus exposed to malicious actors, either directly or indirectly. Lives and health are obviously at stake if things go sideways in a hospital, and criminals take advantage of this. They know that they can get victims between a rock and a hard place. And as much as we in the InfoSec community advocate, unanimously as far as I can tell, against paying the ransom, try to imagine yourself in the role of a hospital administrator when you get hit with ransomware. Maybe you know that the advised course of action is not to pay the ransom, but you have people panicked, frightened, asking you to do something right away. What do you do? So as despicable as it is, there's a logic to hospitals being a ransomware target, and Ryuk had a banner year in 2020. Now, we don't have sworn statements from cyber criminal gangs saying that they specifically decided to ramp things up because of the already tenuous position that the hospitals were in because of COVID, but we've already established that these are not ethical people we're talking about. So the uptick in attacks on hospitals was pretty predictable. What did we see in 2020 in terms of healthcare ransomware activity? So we definitely saw a ramp up in ransomware activity from multiple variants of ransomware, uh, from Maze to you know other popular uh, ransomwares out there, um, with a pretty decent uptick during the summertime. Um, and if I recall correctly, I'd have to double check my dates, but I believe one of the first ransomware, one of the first actual deaths, uh, human loss of life events happened in Germany from a ransomware event around that same time, too. There was no slowdown uh, of ransomware attacks, cyber breaches, business email compromise scams at all uh, when we are talking about med- the medical community, whether you're talking about a hospital system or the local mom and pop you know, medical shop and, you know, rural, wherever, these were all being hit and they were being hit very consistently. And some of the larger gangs too would continue to do that. Like Ryuk, you know, we saw that going everywhere. You know, the Klopp ransomware gang, Gregor, and on and on and on. Uh, you know, so there really wasn't much of a slowdown uh, of that. And in terms of an increase, I mean, I think, I feel like breaches are increasing. And I think the data shows it out that breaches are just continuously increasing as we are you know, I, I think a lot of cyber defense strategies are just simply one step behind, you know, how to actually defend an organization effectively as ransomware evolves. As if any sort of ransomware weren't bad enough, there was a particular type of it that became really popular in 2020 as well, so-called double extortion ransomware. Yes, yeah, so double extortion ransomware is when um, they, not only do they e- encrypt your files um, and demand a ransom to have them be decrypted or possibly not decrypted, um, but they will also exfiltrate sensitive data before they do that from your network. And if you do not pay on time, they will leak that to a leaks website. Maybe because would-be victims are more savvy about not paying ransoms. Maybe also because some of them are changing their backup practices to protect the backups against infection. Whatever the reason, 
ransomware actors up to the stakes? What they'll do is um, give you a very short time period. So you have to make quick decisions um, and then we'll leak that data online um, publicly and for free. And um, sometimes that can involve your entire customer database. Sometimes that can involve your accounting software. Sometimes that can involve private emails between your C-levels. So um, it certainly encourages people to pay out as quickly as possible. Now, having your data auctioned off on a criminal forum is all kinds of bad for pretty much any victim. Everything from identity theft to financial losses to embarrassing secrets and much more is in play if sensitive data gets into the wrong hands. But for healthcare providers, there's another level of risk. HIPAA is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, and it was actually signed into law under the Clinton administration in 1996. Basically, it protects what is known as your personal health information. So when you go to the doctor, that doctor, your doctor, the hospital system, uh, cannot give that information out without your permission, and therefore they are required to have specific technological, administrative, and um, physical safeguards around your information. So in other words, they have to have a lock on the cabinet so nobody can walk away with your information. When HIPAA was written, there was no language in the law giving a victim hospital an out in an instance of ransomware. Ransomware wasn't even a thing when the law was passed. So now, not only do hospitals have to worry about possible loss of life, other patient outcomes, or even just hits to their productivity, they can face substantial penalties if patient data under their care is stolen and exposed. The traditional advice on ransomware is not to pay. I asked Tarek, does double extortion change that advice in your opinion? As as security practitioners, it doesn't. However, you know, it's really easy for us to kind of sit back and say, oh, never pay. But, you know, in reality, if people are, you know, potentially losing their life or anything, I, I understand. So it's it's a it's a tough situation to be in. Clearly, the best thing to do about ransomware is not to get infected with it to begin with, especially now that just having safe backups isn't necessarily enough to insulate you from dire consequences. How have best practices in avoiding ransomware changed? Are these uh, are there things we're learning from the more recent activities that point toward new defenses? Um, in one sense, uh, you know, the classic um, basic network hygiene of segmentation and, um, you know, real visibility into those critical assets and your crown jewels, if you will, um, is just critically important. But um, as far as new goes, you know, there's some... Um, behavioral tools that are getting a little bit better at spotting um, ransomware actors and attacks. Um, you know, Windows Defender, of course, is coming along more and more all the time and being able to spot um, something that would look like a ransomware attack, no matter how obfuscated the code is, um, or rather how uh, uh, crafty the attack is. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly uh, I wouldn't rely on that when you can go with the good old, um, you know, methodology of really just blocking off your most critical assets to make sure that um, those things aren't accessible easily um, from uh, you know ransomware actors perspective and I I highly expanding on that too is you know uh, in addition to all those points I recommend all um, security practitioners go through a threat modeling exercise uh, threat modeling kind of covers a lot of the bases where you know Chad mentioned the crown jewels um, and that's where you kind of start off as your data catalog. Uh, and that's essentially saying, okay, what's what's the most sensitive data that gets, you know, held or transmitted on my network and where does it exist? And then, you know, kind of like you're building a castle, right? Where you want to build these massive walls between sensitive data and non-sensitive data with very narrow bridges 
between them. And those bridges have guards on them, right? To do like multi-factor authentication and other other forms of like gatekeeping, if you will. Um, those are things that like are tried and true that have been around, like threat modeling has been around for decades. And um, it still is probably one of the most practical things you can do here um, on a very high level, right? And then you dig into the weeds, like what Chad was saying with Windows Defender, which is how do you start, how do you, spot and flag and detect you know ransomware behavior uh before it has a chance to just spread if you will uh, a localized incident is is a big deal but you know one that spreads is even uh, even more concerning the rate of hospital ransomware infections may ebb and flow a bit but it's pretty clear to nick that it's remaining a huge problem absolutely i mean and just for example and just in the last month and a half from February to now, we've seen three major hospitals in France get hit with ransomware as well. I mean, this is a nonstop problem that we're going to continue to have. We've seen, um, you know, cyber criminal groups go from uh, COVID tracing kind of phishing lures and attacks to um, replacing tracing, COVID tracing with COVID vaccine. The world breathed at least a bit of a sigh of relief when the two major COVID vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna were approved in late 2020. It felt like there was at least a little light at the end of the tunnel, even if it was faint and still very far away. But it's 2021 now, and the rollout is slow, even if it is accelerating some. For many people who want to get vaccinated, the wait is likely to be still many weeks or months, and that's frustrating and frightening. So it's natural that people might start looking for other ways to get themselves vaccinated. And if you hadn't guessed already, fraudsters have been preparing for that market demand. So yeah, there's a lot of different things being sold on a um, from a black market perspective, uh, most of which are absolute scams. Sketchy online pharmaceutical sales are almost as old as the internet itself, at least the consumer-oriented web. If you have an email account, there's a good chance that you've seen ads for mail-order pills, usually for weight loss or bedroom enhancement. But just as it opened opportunities for ransomware, the pandemic opened a high-stakes market for vaccines. The big thing that we came across was that on a number of low repute scam markets on the dark web, um, places that are known to kind of siphon off your Bitcoin um, or, you know, maybe things are never delivered or they don't have particularly reputable sellers. Um, we're offering both Pfizer, Moderna and now Johnson & Johnson vaccines for sale. Chad has been studying this market for a while now. He's developed some insights into how the various fraud mechanisms work. And remember those sketchy domains that Turbo and Nick were finding registered at great numbers? They're part of this black market, as is the dark web. Um, so we do see the uh, registrations of domains that either like, you know, redirect to Shopify stores or are Shopify stores. So we do see some of that. Um, a lot of the dark web stuff, yeah, is pretty much just me crawling um, forums and uh, stuff that I, I know about. Whenever I see something in the news that I'm like, um, that sounds like a terrible idea or, well, rather I see something in the news and I think to myself of a terrible idea and I go, that sounds terrible. I'll go see if it's on the dark web. It's usually there. If you decided to spring for a vaccine from one of these sources, of course, there's nothing besides the word of a shady online seller that what you received is actually a vaccine for COVID. 
unless you were prepared to take it to a lab for testing, provided you could even find such services, you'd be rolling the dice. Based on all of the other fraudulent vaccine-related merchandise, though, it seems improbable that actual vials of fake or unverified vaccine are going to be very widespread in the long run. Part of the reason for that is that there are a lot of other unsavory ways to sell COVID vaccine-related products. The whole thing is you want the vaccination card. Like, if you're going to get a vaccine and you don't get the vaccination card, then you don't get the access to the open world that the rest of the people do that have gotten the vaccine, right? And that's where it transitions into the next set of things that we see now, where there are, like on eBay or uh, Shopify stores, these um, fake vaccination cards. And then people will just go onto Instagram and look for people who have posted their vaccination card and copy over the information, such as the batch number and uh, dates and whatnot, which is all that really is there on those CDC cards. Um, And the same has been happening with the UK cards and other places as well, because most countries do not have a um, vaccination passport yet. We're seeing vaccine scam sites for people that are signing up for vaccines that are being forgotten. There's this whole vaccine hunter movement, right, where you can go ahead and sign up, uh, give your personal information, and some of them will have a, you know, need to fill in your credit card information or whatever. And people are falling for this because they want the vaccine so bad. It's essentially just another credential harvesting and phishing site. Another online feature of the pandemic has been the extensive mis- and disinformation campaigns around everything from the origin of the virus to the severity of the symptoms, to the ways it spreads, to the efficacy of vaccines, to the really nutso conspiracy theories about 5G, Bill Gates, and microchips. Nick Espinoza has been watching all of this unfold. Recently, in the COVID world, we have a couple of different problems uh, in the sense that we have seen an explosion of conspiracy theories, whether you're talking about QAnon or, or other things that are related, such as, uh, you know, 5G exacerbates the coronavirus or, you know, those kinds of things. And so by virtue of that, the natural extension is as we start getting uh, vaccinated, there's going to be misinformation and disinformation out there that either says, one, it is more harmful than, than it is per all the statistical studies we've seen from Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, AstraZeneca, uh, you know, and all of the others, Johnson & Johnson now as well. Um, we're also going to see uh, basically straight up anti-vaccination uh, things that say this will give you autism. That was one that we saw going around for a while. Uh, you know, another one which was really fun was, you know, this is basically Bill Gates's way to insert brain chips into everybody, <laughs> you know, to, to, to get this going. Uh, you know, this is basically government control in, in some way, shape or another when you're looking at this. The, the other one that we also saw was that um, by, um, basically Moderna, no, uh, no, I'm sorry, Pfizer and BioNTech's um, vaccine and Moderna's vaccine, actually, now that I think about it, is actually based on a technology called mRNA. And a lot of people say, oh, there, there's been a lot of disinformation and misinformation about that saying, yo, well, this is unproven. This is brand new. Why would I Why would I do this? When the fact is, is that mRNA, actually, the concept of that started in the 1990s, and it's been used in things like uh, AIDS treatment, cancer treatments as well. This is 
is not a new technology in the sense that that the, the coronavirus or COVID-19 vaccine is the first of its kind here. This is a technology that's been used in other medical practices without any kind of fanfare. But because we're living in a polarized society, because we have basically a small but extremely vocal voice coming out there and saying that this is brand new and I wouldn't do this because it's going to insert the Bill Gates brain chip registered trademark into my head, you know, here we are. And I think that's one of the big problems that we have right now. Kate Starbird is a professor of human-centered design and engineering, or HCDE, at the University of Washington. She's one of the foremost experts on how misinformation and disinformation spread online. She saw this coming from the very start. Here's Kate speaking on a virtual panel jointly hosted by the University of Washington and Washington State University in April of 2020, around a year ago. She's describing how disasters create an environment where both misinformation, information that's not deliberately false, and disinformation, information that is deliberately false, can thrive. Yeah, so there's something just about crisis events in general that make us vulnerable to the spread of rumors and misinformation. And this is something that disaster sociologists or the people that study human behavior during disasters have known for a long time. But during a disaster event, often things are uncertain. And in that uncertainty, we feel anxiety about what should we do? What action should we take? And we want to re resolve that uncertainty and that anxiety. And we do that by trying to come together, get information, share information, generate explanations for what's happening. And in that kind of, they call it a rumor milling process, in that kind of process, and also they call it sense making as well, that, that process of trying to make sense of what's going on, we can generate explanations that turn out to be true and explanations that turn out to be false. And so we're, we're in that process, and, and I think we all are experiencing that right now with COVID, we're in that process of trying to resolve this uncertainty and, and, we're, and we're sometimes spreading things that, that may turn out to be true, that aren't true yet, or that seem true now and might not be true later, and things that are just uh, blatantly false as well. And one of the things we have right now with COVID is kind of a perfect storm of sorts because the event itself, you know, when I normally study a disaster, like an earthquake happens, and it's horrible, and but in the, for the first few hours, we don't know what's happened. We don't know what the damage is or, or where should we go and, and what's happened. But over the next couple of days, that, that uncertainty gets resolved, most of it. You can see, okay, this is where the damage is. The communications towers go back on and you can see what's happened. With COVID-19, the uncertainty isn't resolving. We have scientific uncertainty about how the disease spreads, about whether actions we take will change, you know, how that will change the progression of the disease. And, we, and, and the science itself, the underlying understanding, that's changing every day. The recommendations are changing. And so in that uncertainty, um, it's just feeding this this mill, this rumor mill of anxiety, and and we're trying to find ways to resolve it, and that's just and we're just spinning, and not just for a couple of days, but now for months, and and I think in that situation we're just naturally vulnerable, and that's without you can take out the internet piece of it, we're just naturally vulnerable to spreading misinformation um, during those times, and unfortunately now this this hits at a time when our information systems are characterized already. Uh, to some extent, by the spread of mis and disinformation. And so not only do we have this kind of natural situation that we're experiencing, we also have this socio-technical situation um, where we're acutely vulnerable to seeing misinformation, to spreading misinformation, and to being purposefully exploited by, by those that want to take advantage of the situation for some other objective. 
If there's a common thread in everything we're talking about today, it's that malicious actors thrive on people's hunger for information or comfort or things like masks or vaccine cards. Any of the actors seeking to deepen American polarization saw lots of opportunity with COVID, and their efforts are certainly succeeding. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll from February of 2021 found that 55% of American adults had gotten the vaccine or wanted to ASAP. The remaining 45%? It's an even split between definitely not and wait and see. The list goes on, too. Studies by the Alliance for Securing Democracy discovered COVID disinformation targeting Latinx Americans, the Harvard Kennedy School Misinformation Review found that when Italy was the epicenter of the pandemic, it became the focus of state-sponsored disinformation campaigns. The Australia Institute found 10 distinct Twitter botnets. They could tell that they were bots because of signals like accounts that retweeted within one second of other tweets. Almost all of these millions of tweets came from extreme right-wing sources. As has been widely documented, the source of a lot of the disinformation about COVID is Russian. An article from December of 2020 by the Homeland Security Affairs Journal described both historical and recent Russian disinformation campaigns and ways in which they are and will continue to weaponize doubts, false or misleading information, and the polarization that those things keep amplifying. Another thing that disaster sociologists have known for a long time is that um, crisis events are a time when some people, not most people, most people are, are, are pro-social. They're trying to help out. They're trying to do the right thing. But there are small, a small group of people called exploiters that try to take advantage of the situation. And what we're seeing now is a range of people and entities and organizations that are trying to take advantage of the situation in different kinds of ways. And for some, it's uh, to gain attention. For some, it's financial. They want to sell something or, you know, kind of manipulate the markets or whatever it is they're trying to do. They've got like financial motivations. And for others, there may be political motivations. And some of those are explicit. They know they're spreading disinformation. And other times, they're actually just trying to fit the information they have into a model of the world that matches their objectives or their values. And so a lot of the misinformation I'm seeing, even the political misinformation, isn't necessarily intentional misinformation. It's people interpreting the information that's at hand in ways that fit their political objectives. While we timed this episode to roughly coincide with the pandemic declaration and the early lockdowns, a year plus into COVID, we can clearly see that the fight, not just against the pandemic itself, but against the cyber criminals looking to capitalize on it, is not going to abate for quite a while. Tarek put it this way. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in a year with COVID, but more or less COVID cyber threats. I think it's going to be really interesting. And if I you know, rest in peace, I can't think about like, how could I miss Cleo this and uh, for and, and forecast what I think would happen? I really I really can't. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see because um, I think the trends are going to be around continuous COVID vaccination. So I'm wondering if once we reach a good vaccination count that, you know, our COVID related um, you know, cyber attacks going to go down or are they just going to dwindle or what? I think it's going to be really fascinating to see in the year, though. There's a good chance that future regular weekly episodes of Breaking Badness will include discussion of new COVID-themed malicious online activity. For now, I'm Tim Helming from Breaking Badness saying, 
Be safe out there. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at DomainTools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's all we have for this week. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click. Click.